Survival Podcast listener questions and answers today. These are all questions or talking points or things like that that you guys have either sent me by email or I've picked them up in comments on the blog, on YouTube, other social media uh, platforms, etc. Got a bunch to talk about today. Got a biochar question. Haven't had any of those in a while. Guy wants to make a fire brick rectangle with 60 degree walls. I'll tell you why I probably wouldn't unless I'm misunderstanding something here. <clears throat> uh, I had another question I thought was pretty interesting, especially after some of the recent interviews we've done. Basically, is Jack, would you right now push harder for people to think about backyard livestock than you would for gardening, given your dietary choices and some of the comments you've made recently about like nutrient density and ease of production? And the answer is sort of. Um, We'll also talk about what it looks like when a city goes bankrupt. This was a, a uh, prognostication that I had uh, many years ago that cities, counties, towns, even states eventually would go bankrupt. Uh, we're starting to see that happen here and there with cities, and we just had one go bankrupt in Alabama. And we'll talk about what it looks like when a city goes bankrupt and how I, I, want, I want to you know, be clear. I have sympathy or at least empathy. For the people getting screwed here, but, well, you'll hear what we cover. Like, the one guy's like, I don't understand why a judge doesn't make them pay me. They don't have the money. Blood cometh not from a stone, all right? And it amazes me that people just think if, if somebody says you have to be paid, that will make it happen. The, the almighty power of the state through its court system can make things that don't exist exist. This is the mindset, and... This shows the danger of this. People don't understand how effed we are as this continues to occur, because it will continue to occur. Um, I talked about bricks a lot over the years. I've been putting shorts out from the show, and recently I put out one of the shorts from a past show that had some stuff about bricks in it. That's Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, and South Africa, and, of course, that alliance is expanding and I'm getting a lot of, they're just all backwater countries. You know how you know when people are just parroting what they're told? When everybody uses the same freaking phrase and it's not a common phrase? Backwater countries. Like, like I got about 10 comments. This is backwater. You don't even know what that means. And you certainly don't know what you're talking about. We're talking about why this is not something to be ignored. And uh, it's also been uh, compared to the United Nations, and one person said they expect it will be just as effective as the UN. We'll talk about how they're so different that making that comparison demonstrates a massive amount of ignorance. Um, not really attacking it, just it does. I'm sorry. I got a question on finding good temps for cooking meats without drying it out and overcooking, and I'll tell you why. It's almost impossible to find the true numbers as to what is safe for your cooking anywhere. And it just has to do with the society we live in being so litigious. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. Um, we'll talk about properly running and managing a deep litter system in a chicken coop. Because the question I got is like, no, don't do that. That is not how you do this. It's not a good idea. I got a listener's tip on getting stupid cheap batteries. 
you know, like a lot of times there's things that come with batteries in them. And sometimes those items are discontinued or returned or thrown out or whatever. Like, how about getting 200 AAA batteries for 10 bucks? I, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you that they're going to be like brand new or whatever, but 200 for 10 bucks. Yeah. I'm going to tell you how to do that today. How to find places to fish near your home. We had a question on that. Um, as predicted, more U.S. colleges risk closing or having to merge with other colleges to survive, something we've also talked about happening more and more. And a user sent me a, or a listener sent me an interesting hack for using ChatGPT to plan meals, but I think it might be really useful for a lot of people just to look at what this person did to refine it down and understand how to get the most out of this AI tool. With that, before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is JM Bullion. I've been recommending that you keep somewhere between 5 and 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold since I started the show. I personally lean to the 5% number. Uh, the 10% number is kind of an upper limit of mine. I don't think that all your money should go in silver or gold, but 5 to 10% of your net wealth is a great wealth assurance program. And if you're going to get your silver or gold from anyone, I would say get it from JM Bullion. First, they've been a sponsor for more than 10 years of this podcast. Secondly, they have better pricing than Monix, Atmex, and Lear Capital, the largest known silver houses out there. Uh, they have an amazing selection of really cool stuff. And I can talk to the owner personally. They give a discount to MSB members, which is pretty cool. There ain't many discounts in the silver and gold industry with the small margins uh, that they have in that industry. And all orders over $200 ship free. I don't know why you get your silver or gold from anybody but JM Bullion. Next up today, a new sponsor uh, just announced last week, and that's uh, K9 Academy. Uh, that's jo Joel Riles' uh, company. And what this is is a virtual online training set of tools that help to make you into a great dog trainer. Look, guys, there's no such thing as a bad dog, but there are shitty dog trainers. I really recommend you at least check out Joel's basics course. It's a one-time fee, 89 bucks. It's the core canine obedience. Anything you're ever going to do with your animals, it always starts with that core. And I know since a lot of you know who Joel is, he's at the Malinois and the Shepherds and all that, and the working dog line and their protection dogs. You might think this is all geared toward that. It isn't. Because whether I'm training a dog to be good on my homestead and not eat my livestock or protect my homestead, or just be a good member of the household, or I'm training the, the fortress canine to be a fortress, no matter what I'm doing, it all starts with core obedience. And once you have core obedience down, you can take that dog anywhere that you want to go. And I'm going to tell you guys, it is a great program. Again, it's called the Canine Academy from Fortress Canine. Uh, please use my links on this one if you could. There's links in the video notes, the audio notes, etc. cetera. Uh, link on the web or the banner on the website as well. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today. And uh, I want to go ahead and pull up the email that this gentleman sent me just so I make sure that I'm answering it correctly or that I'm, I'm defining his question as accurately as I can. So Jeff sent me this email and said, is the key just 60-degree walls when it comes to making biochar? Could I just build a fire brick rectangle with 60-degree walls, load with material, and have consistent size and moisture content center and get biochar, or should I buy the $200 unit? Thanks, Jeff. 
By two hundred dollar unit, I think he's talking about the. And this is not what I'm. I'm not saying it is. This is what they. It's called. It's called. It's marketed as the best biochar kiln. It's made out of sh uh, uh, sheet steel. Uh, you pop rivet it together. I own one. I really like it. It works really, really good. I've had it for probably six or seven years, and it's still great. Uh, I haven't done a tremendous number of burns in it, but quite a few, and it has not, you know, failed me at all. So it's definitely a good tool. Economically, it's not the most economical way to go. The easiest thing you can do to make biochar is get a steel drum, 55-gallon steel drum. You don't have to build what they call a T-LUT or, you know, any of these uh, uh, retort-type uh, kilns or anything. You literally can take a 55-gallon drum, take an angle grinder, and cut it in half and have two kilns, just half barrels, but don't put any holes in the bottom of them. And you can watch all the stuff I've done on biochar already. My long, like, two-and-a-half-hour course on it is basically free. I'll add a link to the show notes for that today to get a better understanding of that. Or you can lay it on its side and cut basically, I call it a saddle. I don't know another word for it. About a one foot wide length of the barrel cut across the top as it lays on its side. Also no holes in the bottom. Those work just great. All of the different kiln examples work great. Um, this is my issue with what you're asking, Jeff. A fire brick rectangle with 60-degree walls. I'm not sure what that would be like. So are you going to dig a hole in the ground and then line the sides with bricks? I can see that kind of working because making a brick structure that's like a fire pit above grade that has 60-degree walls seems complicated to me. Maybe it's just me, but it seems very complicated. <coughs> The reality is you can literally dig a pit in the ground, angled walls, shoot for 60 degrees, and make it in the ground. You don't have to line it with anything. The reason I like kilns instead of pits, unless we're making massive, massive amounts, and we have some like heavy equipment like backhoes or like a track hoe or something that we can use in what we're doing here, is what happens when the burn's done. <coughs> so when the burn's done, what I like to do is completely soak the biochar in water. I mean, I fill up to the top and then let it drain out the bottom. Fill it up like it's a bucket that you're putting water in to carry somewhere, right? Like you're carrying, like you're CNN carrying water for the Democrats, like that. Um, you get a complete and total extinguishing. You're never going to come back in the morning and find that you've gone to ash because the, it kept burning and you thought it was out. The other nice thing about that complete soaking is if you're going to do what I do, which is crush it using uh, a wood chipper shredder, which is what I use, that if you completely soak it and wait two days, it'll go right through a chipper shredder. It won't make a giant cloud of dust, and it won't gum up the works. If you do it when it's too wet, you'll make paste. If you do it too dry, you'll make a giant cloud of actually very dangerous cloud because if you breathe that in, it can be incredible. It's like breathing in volcanic ash it can be incredibly damaging to your lungs. So always when you're doing anything like that, even when you have it moistened to some degree, use a face covering because, again, biochar is great everywhere except in your lungs. So when you do it in a pit in the ground or anything like a concrete structure or something, my problem is you then have to get it out. So now we're using a shovel or something like that, where with the tub or the cone kiln I use, 
once I know it's ready to go, I just dump it into tubs and then dump those tubs into uh, the, the chipper shredder. And then that goes into a garbage can and then gets stored in however I'm going to store it. And so it's just a lot easier. I also like to, when I soak it, I'll dump in like a quart of uh, liquid kelp or even a couple cups of kelp meal and some other uh, like rock dust and stuff like that to start that process of mineralizing, colonizing everything. And it's just easier that way where if you have a pit and you fill up with water, you can be sitting there with basically a pond for a while, or again, you're having to dig it out. So I like the idea of some level of a kiln because it just makes it easier to empty and it makes it easier to begin the process of getting it habitable, setting it up so it's habitable for microorganisms and things like that. Uh, the next question I had was someone said, you know, you had a guy on recently with his kid. It was a great interview, by the way, last week about raising, you know, beef and pork and things like that on your own land. You've talked about it quite a bit recently. You're not carnivore, but you're basically ketivore, almost carnivore. With that all in mind, when you, if you were advising someone on getting started on a homestead now, would you advise them to focus on things like that a hell of a lot more than gardening and, and what have you? Because if you're going to eat mostly meat, then a garden could be wasted energy. Well, it certainly could. I think it depends. I pretty much in my gardens for years now have grown peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, greens, a little bit of squash, you know, but I mean, it's squash for whenever it's like, like this big tactical squash behind me or what have you. Um, I've, I've not really seen it as a staple of my food. I grow a lot of herbs, medicinal and culinary. Um, yes, I get far more calories from duck eggs than I do from the garden. If I was really trying to maximize it, you know, I would bring in something like rabbits. I could probably get away with doing a couple sheep, like two, two ewes and a ram here. It would be a lot of work considering how the property is for a few months out of the year. I'd have to feed them hay and I really wouldn't want to do that. Um, but definitely I would move toward the livestock side of things for myself. What should you do is highly dependent on what your diet is like and what your goals are. I will tell you something about gardens. Gardens can very, very easily have their irrigation systems automated. And then you can go away for three or four days. And when you come back, your garden's just fine. Uh, animals don't work that way. When you have livestock, the one real negative is it ties you to your property and it requires when you have somebody watch your property, a level of expertise beyond your typical homestead, home sitter, right? Your house, typical house sitter. So that's my one caution for people is thinking about your animal based systems from a standpoint of if you're a person that likes to travel, it's going to alter your life. And it's going to, at the, the best case scenario, it's going to make vacationing and traveling more expensive because you're probably going to need to pay somebody to maintain your livestock. Now, there are some exceptions. Uh, Brad Davies, who worked with us for a while on quail, uh, he would automate his quail system so he could definitely take a long weekend. And, and, and there was, you know, a hopper feeder and a reservoir of, of moisture and, uh, of water so that the water would gravity flow and it wouldn't run out. And you, he knew he could leave for three or four days and come back and the quail were fine. 
all the eggs would roll into the front of the cages. He would just pick up all the eggs then. Everything was good, you know, it, 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 and things were fine. And, and I think you can do that to a degree, but you are going to limit your ability to just, you know, bug out, so to say, uh, recreationally with livestock. But there is nothing, there is nothing that will produce the ROI versus work in calories out like livestock will. You won't, you won't do it with a garden. If you do it with a garden at all, you're going to have to do it with heavy carbohydrate crops like potatoes, sweet potatoes, and things like that. When it comes to like your regular vegetables and fruits that we call vegetables like cucumbers and tomatoes and eggplants and peppers, it's more a money-saving and a lifestyle enhancement thing than it is a caloric yield thing. So I think it's something that people have to make a dependent uh, decision on for themselves. You know, kind of my favorite uh, critters to grow are poultry because they're pretty easy, but they still have to be let out every day. They have to be fed every day. They have to be looked after. You have to pick up eggs. Uh, if you're doing ducks, unless you have natural ponds that are sufficient, you have to put out water for them every day. It's work. It's work. It's less work than a garden from a labor standpoint, but it's more consistent work from like every day. And I, I would be lying if there weren't mornings when it's like a weekend or something, and I get to sleep in and I wake up about 630 to 645 like clockwork. Even if I don't get out of bed, I just wake up and I'll be like, I bet it's about 630 ish, you know, like 637, right? Every day. And there'll be days like Dorothy's like, just stay in bed a little bit extra. It's a Saturday or whatever. And I'm not leaving them in the coop until 930 or whatever. Now, you can put automated doors in or whatever if you want to. But, you know, there are mornings where I'm like, I don't – you get up, you go out, let them out, go back to bed. But I don't really want to do it. <laughs> I know I don't know about you guys, but I'm the kind of guy, if I get up out of bed more than to go take a pee, I'm pretty much up. Like, if I go back to bed, I'll lay back down in the bed, and I'll sit there for about five minutes and go, this isn't happening. I'm not going back to sleep or whatever. So, um, again, it's it's really more of what you want. Now let's talk about <clears throat> a city going bankrupt. Um, it's definitely something I talked about years ago. I, in fact, I said there would be mass amounts of municipal bankruptcies in the country uh, eventually, and I believe there will be. But this is in the sun today. Um, this city in Alabama uh, went bankrupt in 2020, and it's now hoping to start anew, just like a company. We filed for, for, for bankruptcy protection. We screwed over our creditors, and now we're going to restructure and stay a city. The city of Fairfield owes former employees, companies, and government agencies millions of dollars, the city struggled for years before finally filing for bankruptcy in 2020, even releasing prisoners from jail after not being able to afford to feed them. Government's a failed experience uh, experiment, in my opinion. The town is outside of Birmingham, rationed gasoline as well to save money, and struggled to pay city employees, current and former. And, of course, we always have to invoke the heroes that don't wear capes, so... Entire here's the headline: Unfair. Entire U.S. city filed for bankruptcy after exhausting its options, leaving veterans and ex-cops fighting to, for pay. So I was like, wait a minute, why would they owe veterans money? 
Well, one of the guys in the story, uh, I guess it didn't really wasn't clear. It sounds like he was called up as a guard or reservist, sent overseas, expected to come back to a job and have his retirement continue to be contributed to while he was, you know, off serving his country. And they wouldn't. But what gets me the most about this? And this shows you the mindset. And again, I'm not picking on the guy. I, I understand why he feels this way. Uh, Parker said they should make at least an individual like me whole from the time that I did serve with the city. Quote, it was due to me. I can't see why a judge or somebody would let them off the hook. End quote. They're bankrupt. They don't have your money. The money is gone. I'm sorry. It sucks. You're right. It is unfair, but life is unfair. And this is what it looks like when a, an entity goes bankrupt. You don't get your money. Your money's gone. Your money's gone. Having been a creditor to a company who went bankrupt, I can tell you, I got nothing. Some people got a little bit. Some as you pick the bones off or whatever, but overall, you don't get anything. Now, the bigger problem here is that we have an entire country full of morons who don't understand these basic principles that when you're out of money, you're out of money. They, they're all, you know, adherence to the concept of money, money printer go burr. And yes, the federal government can print money at will. They do it all the time. The Federal Reserve, which isn't even part of the government, is the ones that really turn the printer on and off. And they can do it whenever they want. They can pretend that they can't do it. They can shriek and yell and act all freaked out over government shut down by next weekend. I don't give a shit. Shut it down. I don't care. Nothing's all's going to happen. The government shutdown just means that they'll they'll just piss everybody off. Right. They'll close all the national parks and shit as though that's saving anything, because all they have to do is leave people alone and not worry about it. There's nothing to do to keep Yellowstone open or whatever. You just get out of the fucking way. But no, they'll they'll do whatever they can to disrupt things and piss people off so the two sides can play grab ass and blame each other. But in the end, they'll just print the money. And they always will just print the money. Yet Birmingham or whatever Alabama here can't do that. So then the mindset becomes, well, the federal government will bail out the cities and the states and the counties. You notice the federal government's not bailing this city out? Do you know why? Do you know why? Because... They, as much as they're willing to print money for their own agendas, they can't set that precedent. They know that eventually it will look like little nuclear bombs going off with counties and cities all over the country going bankrupt. They can't afford to bail everybody out. They can't afford to bail everybody out. And you're going to see, like right now, UAW's on strike. They were offered a 20% raise, and they're like, no, fuck that. We want 40%. And they're talking shit about, but we made concessions back in 2008. Uh, yeah, you made concessions because you were all going to lose your fucking jobs back in 2008. 40% ain't good enough, right? And, you know, they're asking for that from Ford, and Ford just lost like $2 billion in the last fiscal year. So you're asking an employer who has losses in the billions to give you a 40% raise, and they've offered you a 20%, you're like, no, screw that. You're going to see this. In major municipalities, especially over the next five years, where a lot of these cities, counties, etc., are going to look at it, have some come-to-Jesus moments like this before they go bankrupt and go, yeah, we can't pay these pensions this way. 
And most of those folks are some form of union, like government union, etc. Office and professional employees unions, etc. And they're going to say, no, 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 you ha- we have an agreement, we have a contract, it says you have to do it. So let, let's look at it this way. Let's say that you sued me, and you got a judgment against me for $10 million. Well, who? Jack Spirigo does not have $10 million. You're not getting it. No matter what you do, no matter how much you shriek and yell and holler, you're not going to get it. At least you would get what I have, most of it anyway, whatever I couldn't protect. But let's say you sue somebody else. You sue random Tom off the street. Random Tom's walking down the street. He looks at you the wrong way. You find a judge who will play ball. You get a judgment against random Tom for $10 million. Random Tom lives in a fucking box on Main Street. You're never getting any money. You're never getting the money. You're not. If Random Tom eventually gets a job stuffing bags or something at a grocery store, you might get a few bucks a week, but you're never getting your $10 million. We all intrinsically understand this, that when the... when When the entity that is supposed to pay you simply does not have the money, it's not there, it doesn't exist, you don't get blood from a stone. Well, that's what's going to happen to these municipalities everywhere. And these these unions and city workers and shit, they're going to push and they're going to make it hurt worse. They're not going to be willing to take anything off the table and eventually they'll get nothing. It'll look just like this. This is going to continue. Uh, next up, I have talked a lot about bricks over the years. Every time I do, I get the same bullshit. They're not that big of an economy. China is the number two economy on the fucking planet. China is one of the cornerstone five BRICS nations. Russia is a bigger economy than you realize. Russia's making a fortune on oil and gas right now, by the way, selling it to countries that said they wouldn't buy it from them because they're fucked without it. Brazil is a massive developing economy. India is is a huge economy, a massive economy, and the second most populated nation in the world. This is not small time, folks. And it amazes me how quickly people will just write off something due to American exceptionalist arrogance. And it's the same people that talk shit about America sucking all the time. We'll do, or the ones that will do it. This is not something only the right will do, right? The, the young, nose-pierced, you know, purple-headed person that doesn't know what gender they are We'll, we'll do the same thing. Oh, there's shit. Nah, oh, nothing. Oh, nah, nah, nah. This belief that, like, as it is, so always shall it be. Well, if we look throughout history, no hegemony has ever lasted. There's been different countries that have been the wealthiest countries in the world continuously changing throughout history. And a couple hundred years is a, is a long, it's not the longest, but it's a long run to be in that position. About the time that the United States was being colonized, the wealthiest nation on the planet was in England, UK, whatever you want to call it, Britain. It was Spain. It was Spain. 
When you read our Constitution and you read the word dollar in our Constitution, our Constitution, where it says dollar, it is not talking about the United States dollar. It's talking about a coin called the Spanish Pieces of Eight. Okay, that's the 1700s. Do you see Spain with a lot of sway in the world right now? And the next real dominant power that came up after Spain wasn't us. It was the UK. From the time the American Revolution ended up until World War II, the UK was on a roll. The sun never sets on the British Empire. And it willingly gave up a lot of control in the post-World War II era, and we picked up the ball. So we like to think of ourselves in America as always been, oh, man, America. America was a third world fucking country when we were turning from the 18 to 1900. So the 19th to 20th century, we're a third world country in the, in the minds of most. We were a backwater. And we weren't much more than that, even after World War I. It was World War II where America really heavily industrialized. Eisenhower had the vision of building out the interstate highway system, et cetera. The story of America as the dominant player in the world is about 70 years old. And, and, and what do you think our life expectancy would be in the best case scenario as a global hegemony? A couple hundred years? That's a long time for anybody. Now look at the way we've conducted ourselves. Look at the way we've conducted ourselves. We print money whenever we need anything. The whole debt ceiling and all, it's all bullshit. It's all, it's all political volleyball, freaking Schiff and freaking, what's his name, uh, whatever, hitting balls back and forth between each other, and they're not even good at it. $32 trillion in debt. Almost $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities between here and 2050. 200 trillion doesn't even make any sense. The mind cannot even understand that number. You don't think somebody's going to say, you know what, enough of this shit. Enough of this shit. One of the big problems Americans have is the thing that they seem to use the least of all the paperwork and things they have is a thing called a passport. Most Americans do not travel globally at all. And when they do travel, they go somewhere like Acapulco, New Me- or Acapulco, Mexico, or Cancun or something. If they do go to Europe, they go to Paris, right? Or they go to London or something. They don't go to the rest of the world. They've never been to India. So it's easy to, oh, India's a backwater. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> there is parts of India that are incredibly incredibly wealthy that the hotels and the restaurants are on par with anything else in the world. And it's damn sure the same case with China. And you can talk about China sucks about this and China's got problems. We all have problems. But when you get billions of people working together, and here's that little comment that somebody brought in to me about the UN. I thought the UN would be effective. I'm looking forward to BRICS being as effective as the UN. The UN is a organization built on conflict under the guise of trying to prevent conflict. It is a pseudo uh, global governance group is what it is. It is designed 
to resolve the fact that two countries want to blow the shit up at each other with hopefully not having them do it, and to decide and pick winners and losers in groups and sanction people and cause problems. The UN is a fucking disaster. BRICS, I'm not saying what they're doing is perfect, but it's a totally different organization. It is a global trade organization. It's a group of countries that said our economic interests are aligned in many ways. We should do business with each other in our own currencies and screw off with this dollar hegemony. When you get nations like Brazil and India and Russia and China and South Africa, and now you've got five major oil-producing nations joining and being accepted in, and almost, almost 70 nations. And if you want to keep saying, oh, it doesn't matter, and that backwater comment, this is how you know the media is feeding people a narrative. You get people that don't know each other, completely different walks of life. One guy's on TikTok, one guy's on YouTube, one guy's on Twitter, and they're all like, these are all backwater nations. You don't know that phrase. You don't know that. You heard that, and you're regurgitating it. And it's the NPC thing, right? You know, orange man, bad. Orange man, bad. You're killing grandma. You're killing grandma, right? And it's the same shit. When you start seeing people, completely diverging people, all using the same phraseology. It's just propaganda and marketing. This isn't going away. And I think the problem is when you talk about it, people think that you're saying, like, this is a big deal. It's going to happen right now. And by next week, the U.S. will lose dollar reserve status in the world. No. This will take a decade or two to fully realize it. But when you talk about a behemoth like the United States of America that's had a stranglehold, fully had a stranglehold since 1971, I mean, it goes back before that. It goes back to, you know, the end of World War II and everybody agreeing to get on the dollar standard. But when the United States managed to say, fuck the gold standard, we can print money at will temporarily, as Nixon said, right, and get away with it, we have complete control over the global economy to a large degree with that. Meaning that we can buy anything we want from anybody we want at any time that we want, and we control the cash flow capital of the globe in most commerce. That's going away, and why wouldn't it? If you were the president of Russia, or whatever the hell they call uh, Xi Jinping, prime minister or whatever of, uh, of China, if you were the president of Brazil, if you were running South Africa, or you were running any nation that wasn't part of the clique that were directly benefiting from the Cantillon effect, the Cantillon effect, right? Wouldn't you look for an alternative, especially if you watch what happened to Russia, for it or against it? I don't care. Think about just being another country, minding your own business, doing your own thing. And going, oh, Russia and Ukraine are going to fight, and the United States is angry, and so is the EU, and Russia's got its people on its side. And all. I go, wait a minute, they just seized billions of dollars of assets from Russians all over the world. They sanctioned them. They kicked them out of SWIFT. Wouldn't you go maybe, you know, we, we, we should have plan B, two is one, one is none. Wouldn't you do that? Then why do you think they wouldn't? They will. And when somebody tells you they're a backwater nation, it's, they're not that big, they're tiny economies, never, you know that person's never been there. 
go to some of these countries and see what they've got going on. It's, it's more than you would believe. Again, um, specifically the wealthy areas of India, I think the average American would have their mind boggled. And by how many wealthy people are, you could say there's billions of poor people there. Um, you can have a hundred million extremely wealthy people and you've got more extremely wealthy people than we have in the United States. Cause that would be a third of our entire population is a third of our entire population. Extremely wealthy. When you have, when you're measuring your population near 2 billion, 10% is a lot of fucking people with a lot of fucking money and just keep believing it's not and keep believing everything will stay the same and see how it works out across time. Okay, another guy <clears throat> asked me a question. I th- found this one interesting. And I don't have a great answer as to where to go to get the information he's asking for. But this came from Yuri. Yuri said, where can I find good temps for meat that won't overcook my meat when I'm smoking or cooking meat? I looked at sites like Traeger's, but they seem to ha- be very high to what something you mentioned on a prior show Thanks. All right. So let, let's let's kind of talk about this. Lucy, the door's open. Get out of here. That's the dog. She's bothering me. The door is literally open. No, go do it yourself. <laughs> All right, guys. So um, when we look at something like I got to get rid of her. I'll be right back. Sorry, guys. So the deal is this week, my wife and uh my son's one aunt have taken the grandchildren on like an extended field trip down to like Fredericksburg and stuff like that. And they're going to do educational stuff. And also it's like a homeschool plus a vacation thing. And that aunt never gets to do time. So anyway, it is what it is. Let's get back at it. So when we look at meat temperatures, we need to understand that the government always plays to the extreme level of stupid with things. So for years and years and years, they insisted if you didn't cook pork to 165 degrees, a thousand trichinosis worms would crawl out of your ass, through your eyes, and eat your brain, and you would die. It's bullshit. And it's always been bullshit. And recently, they reduced the number to 145 degrees with a certain amount of time resting, which is still higher than you need to cook pork, for instance. The temperature that you can be sure you've annihilated any trichinosis worms that could be in pork, if it's even there, because it's very low possibility that it is, and if it's been frozen for 20 days, it doesn't matter anyway. Frozen at 5 degrees Fahrenheit or lower. But it's 137 degrees. The reason they don't recommend that temperature is your top temperature. Because it has to hold that temperature for like 10 minutes or something like that, to be 100% sure. Temperatures are not just reached this temperature and they've done their, you know, pasteurization or whatever. Many times a temperature, for instance, if you bring water to 160 degrees and you hold it there for 30 minutes, you've pasteurized it as much as if you took it to 200 degrees and boiled it for 10 seconds. The longer you hold a temperature, the more you kill things. So by saying 145, they know you're going to be above that temperature for long enough. Those of us who do sous vide with pork know that we can put that sucker on 137. They can sit in there for two hours. It'll never get any hotter, but it will definitely do its job. 
right? So one of the problems that you'll always have when you're trying to get this information is everybody knows this. Nobody wants to go on record, put it in print, especially if it's, he mentioned Traeger, make a grill. The off chance that somebody somehow gets sick, even if it had nothing to do with it, can you not see a lawyer going, well, the USDA, who is God to this court, says that you can't, you need to cook at least 145, and this person bought your product, and the documentation on your website or with the product or whatever says 138, you, you killed my client's daughter or whatever. So they just, whatever the government says, they'll put. So the government says beef is supposed to be 145. If you take a ribeye to 145, in my opinion, you've sinned against steak. Most steak eaters, when we're talking ribeyes, New York strips, bullets, whatever, unless, you know, you, you need to be thrown out of a steakhouse, they're looking at medium rare, rare, and you're somewhere in the 130s. And they'll tell you, well, that's dangerous, but you can do it. Well, wait a minute. And then, <laughs> anybody know what steak capaccio is? Or tartare? It's raw beef. How can it be safe to eat the meat raw? Well, that meat has to be handled correctly. Well, where do you think the other beef went? I think I wiped my butt with it before I put it on your plate? Now, there are certain things when you start getting into grinding meat or chopping meat that we have to treat things a little bit differently. If we're going to do a steak tartare or a capaccio or something, and we're going to cut up meat from whole muscle to small pieces, there are certain safe handling practices you have to follow. But my point is, if this stuff was as dangerous as they made it out to be, we'd all be dead by now. We also have a situation where when we look at chicken, White meat cooked to like 150 to 155 is really well, perfectly done. It will be juicy. Uh, it will not be overcooked. And you can enjoy eating it. But if you cook thigh or drumstick to 150, 155, it's not done. And it's not just that it's not safe. It doesn't, it doesn't eat well, right? It doesn't take – like. Nobody, like, people like rare beef or rare lamb. Nobody wants rare chicken. That's just nasty. So we have to figure this out a large degree to ourselves. But basically, there is no temperature too low for whole muscle beef as long as it's safe handled and it's not been, like, left out in the sun to collect, you know, maggots or something because people eat it raw. When it comes to ground beef, you should probably cook it at least to medium well. Unless you made it yourself and you you know how it was handled the entire time. Pork, you're in the neighborhood of 140 degrees. But some, like not everything needs to be a low temperature. If we are properly cooking something like a pork shoulder, we might take that up to 203 degrees really, really, really slowly across time. Or a brisket or something like that. So high temperature cook or high temperature endpoint does not always equal dried out thing. Different meats need to be cooked different ways. So <laughs> I don't have a site to send you to with the real numbers. I'm just going to tell you beef, lamb, and other red meat in the 130s is fine. Pork in the high 130s, mid 140s is fine. Chicken, you probably should follow the recommendations, but when you cook a whole chicken, 
you're cooking two completely different cuts together, and it makes sense to part things out and handle them separately. And I, I feel the same way about turkey. I have long ago ceased cooking, like, just so you can bring out a turkey at Thanksgiving where you have, like, the whole bird. I've, I've quit that. I part out breasts, and I part out leg and thigh. I cook them actually the same time in the oven together, but with their own temperature, uh, your own thermometers. And I pull them at different times based on what they are. And my results doing that so much better. And again, just understand any of these temperatures, they're giving you a temperature that they know for a fact, if you reach that temperature for 30 seconds, you're good. But everything that is susceptible to heat begins to die much below that temperature. It's a matter of holding the temperature for a given amount of time. There's an idiot attacking somebody else that did a video on TikTok about, you know, it's impossible to clean a sous vide uh, heater elements. I want to do a follow video to it. Take my sous vide, just go click, and there's the element right there. There it is. There it is. Rinse it off. Uh, but their point was that since this guy had cooked something straight in the water, which I, to be fair, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that, but he did. And he was basically pasteurizing scallops to make to make a version of sashimi uh, that he had basically destroyed uh, the sanctity of the sous vide circulator, and it would be contaminated forever. And I'm like, you know, if you Put that thing in the water at 140 degrees, just plain water for an hour. There's nothing living in there that you need to be worried about anymore after that. But they couldn't understand it or handle it. Um, again, just know that when you see all these numbers put out by uh, food food manufacturers and like grill manufacturers and shit like that, they're just not going to risk it. They're just not gonna. They're not gonna put themselves out there. They're not gonna defy uh, God government. They're just not gonna do it. Uh, moving on. Um, person asked me about a chicken coop. I found this to be an interesting question. And unless I'm misunderstanding what I'm being asked, the answer is no, no. Do not do this. So this is from Eric in Michigan. He said, "Should I put a year's worth of deep chicken litter into their run or place where chickens can't get to it?" I have 15 laying hens in a coop and run system with about two cubic yards of chicken poop and wood chip bedding from the past year on the floor in the coop. When I clean the coop out, should I move the poop to their run and let them scratch through it to mix it up? Or is that a disease vector? Or should I move the poop near the garden where the chickens can't get to it? It's almost fall and I have unlimited leaves to mix in because right now the pile has likely too much nitrogen versus carbon Zone 6, Michigan. So, first of all, when I read this, I'm getting two things here that could be going on. Let's do the first one first, which may not be what's going on here. And that is if you're doing deep litter in your coop, not your run, should you ever put, like, two foot in there in one go? No. You want to put down a layer, and when that starts to be a little stinky and, and not so nice anymore, add another layer and add another layer, add another layer, and keep adding layers. Because if you just make it deep from the very beginning, it's you're going to have, like, this nastiness on the surface of your deep litter and, like, almost completely clean litter down at the bottom, even though the chickens will pull it up some. As far as moving it into the run and letting them go through it, that's a fine idea to a degree. But what's going to happen, They're going unless you somehow contain it and do, like, the chicken tractor on steroids thing with it, it's going to get just raked into their run itself, 
and it's probably not going to be very usable to you. What I would personally do is I would take it and put it into a compost uh, system like I do, which is basically a six-foot hoop of goat fence with some pipes in it, and you can look on my YouTube channel and put, just put composting in to search my YouTube channel and see some videos of how I do that and uh, keep it nice and wet and let it compost. That way you have it and it's available. If you feel it's too high in nitrogen, yeah, you can add some carbon, but my 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 experience in using coop pullout is it's almost perfect. It's Unless, like, you were doing the deep litter thing and then you quit for, like, six months and it's, like, caked with chicken shit on the top and you can't see any carbon anymore, I wouldn't worry about if you want to add carbon, leaves, wood chips, whatever, go ahead. If you have unlimited leaves, this is what I would be putting into your run to let them frolic in, scratch up, find things to eat on, break down, whatever. And maybe eventually you scrape off that run to a degree and incorporate that into your compost as well, which will give you a great level of like indigenous microorganism inoculation and things like that. And this is pretty much what I do. I have a pit. I put all the compostables from the kitchen in there. When I feed the ducks and the chickens duckweed or water hyacinth or any of that stuff, I throw it in that pit. And when we make our compost, I actually will, like, put a bunch of the stuff out of the coop in the, into the compost uh, composter. And then we'll take a shovel and we'll just sprinkle a layer out of that pit. And then we'll do another. And then we'll sprinkle. And that's inoculating that. And it, it works really well. That's the approach that I would take because when you have a run – especially if it's kind of tight in there, it may be hard for you to eventually remove that material. Now, if you want to set it up so it kind of like works its way down to the end and pops out the end all composted and chickenified, that would be great. Uh, Jeff Lawton had a pretty cool video of their Greening the Desert 2 uh, location in Jordan where they had done just that. They had a concrete-floored chicken run, and they were basically taking this similar material you're talking about and then every so many days, they were reshoveling it to another pile and bringing in a new pile and working these piles until that last point at the end. And they pulled it out the end. They had, you know, maybe let it rest a week or two. And you had compost to use in the garden. So if you want to emulate that, you can. But I wouldn't. And I wouldn't overthink, hey, there's too much nitrogen here. Uh, the composting process, eventually there'll be enough bonding with enough carbon. But again, if you want to just like, if you have really a lot of, waste chicken poop in with your bedding adding a lot of carbon one of the things it'll do for you i'm less worried about it being too much nitrogen you'll get more compost you just can bulk it up that way and you're going to get a lot of good stuff when you're using leaf fall as well and you get especially if you got oak leaves you get oak mold right and it's it's one of the best soil inoculums that you get your hands on uh really simple to do so I would be doing both, adding some of that since you have unlimited, and I would be putting anything beyond what you can use into the run. Let them process that for you. Uh, and then, like I said, you can remove it as you see fit and mix it with the, the, the waste out of your chicken coop. But if you are doing deep litter, make sure you're, you know, you put like two inches down, let them go for a month, put another two inches down, let them go for a month, put another two inches down, let them go for a month. And to, don't, get religious with my two inches. I'm just giving you examples like enough that you freshened everything up and it doesn't stink. 
Moving on, let's see where we're at with things now. We Oh, we're going to talk about stupid cheap batteries. Check this out. So I want to read this dude's comment he put on the blog. He said, a user, this is from TN Griller, a user on Zello at Survival Podcast Network that I was chatting with told me about batteryhookup.com. They recycle batteries and sell them stupid cheap. How about 200 AAA or AA batteries unused but taken out of unsold electronics for $10? I'm fully stocked up on D, AA, AAA, CR123 for way less than buying them at Walmart. If they are sold out when you first look, keep checking back as their products go in and out of stock frequently. I hope this helps you all. And you can see on the screen here, 10 bucks for 200 AAA batteries. So I do have a link to that site in the audio notes. I don't have a lot of other things to say about it. I dug around it a little bit this morning, and I, w- I was content enough to recommend it. I don't know a lot about the site, but I figure for something like that, I don't know how you can go wrong. Now, they have a lot of other types of batteries, larger battery systems, things like that, that are more of the recycle type and what have you. I don't know how good those deals are or are not because I haven't dug through it yet. But come on, guys. When we're talking about double A's or triple A's, if, you, if you've got 200 of them for 10 bucks, and half of them ended up being shit garbage, and you got 100 for 10 bucks, I think you're still doing pretty good. So I wanted to let you guys uh, know about this website. It seems like a, a really uh, great way to do things at least to pick up some extra. And I would say with batteries, I am, I'm big on always having some that you absolutely know that you can rely on for your key devices, like your EDC light and stuff. Like I'm going to have the best door of sales I can get two or three sets for. But having extra like this at that price, I'm going to order some. Uh, we do have one question I've started just now, and we'll get to it for Q&A at the end for Builder of Castles. If you have a question or talking point for me today and you're on the live stream, do it exactly the way he did it. Question in all caps and then your question or your comment, and we will, again, get to that later. But go ahead and put them up if you have them, folks, and I will try to work in some Q&A here at the end, and I will put that in there just to remind you of that. But that's all I have on that one. It was just a quick segment I wanted to let you guys know about. I had another question about how to find places to fish near your home. This might be something we do a little bit more in depth. Could actually do some demos with Google Maps and stuff like that, um, and kind of like a full show. But I'll give you some basic ways you can do this. One thing you can do: go to Google Maps and start looking. You know, twenty miles or less around where you live. And this person was specifically saying, "I don't have a boat. I don't have a lot of money. I'm talking about bank fishing on the cheap." catfish, bluegill, stuff like that, like you always say. How do I just even find places where I can fish without being bothered and there's actually fish in them? One, again, turn Google Maps on. Leave it in the map mode at first. You'll see a lot of times bodies of water will be really obvious in map mode because they'll be blue. You'll see creeks, streams, ponds, etc. When you find, let's say, a stream or a creek or a river, switch over to the satellite view and follow it to where it intersects roads. Most places where there's an overpass, if there's a place to park, there's easement there where you can legally park and you can go access that Creek. Now every state is different. 
different places have different rules as to th stuff being, you know, posted or whatever. But in most of the places I've been, especially like a state highway, an interstate highway, a main road, et cetera, if there's a creek under there, if nothing else, you can go down and access that creek underneath the bridge. And so instead of just driving around looking for things like that, pull up Google Maps and look for stuff like that. If they have one, use the street view. A lot of times you can get a really good look at what that place looks like, and then you know before you even waste a drop of gas to go there, it's at least worth checking out. Try to find yourself four or five places to check out. Check for ponds, park ponds. A lot of times there's ponds that are like part of like a housing area, but it's not religiously enforced by Karens or whatever. And anybody that wants to fish there, as long as you don't cause a problem, they'll leave you alone. If it's out on a main road and they don't have it fenced in, it's really difficult for them unless there's some special regulation in place to even tell you you can't fish there. So looking for places like that. When you go out and check them out, one of the things to do is look for signs that people fish there. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times those signs are garbage that people leave behind. And one of the things you can do to kind of safeguard these places is when I go fishing, I always have a trash bag with me for all my trash. And when people have shit laying around, I throw it all out. I either throw, start a little campfire and throw it all in there or throw it in a bag and get rid of it. Because it really hurts us and our ability to find places because it is shit like that. It causes problems. But a lot of times you can tell a place is fished just because people leave behind like Y sticks to put rods in and stuff like that. If other people are fishing there on a regular basis, there's probably a decent opportunity there for fishing. So those are a couple ways. If you live near the coast, I'm just going to say, learn how to read tide charts and start surf fishing and start, you know, getting involved with, you know, any kind of forums or whatever, where it's discussed the area that you want to fish because You'll find certain fish species have times of the year where they're just impossible to catch, and they have other times of the year they're impossible not to catch. Like when we, what we call whiting, they're not actually whiting. They're actually their name is a Gulf King fish, and they're not like the big king mackerel, little whiting. You know, a big one is like six, sixteen inches is a bull whiting. Um, when they're in the surf, just little bits of shrimp or squid or whatever, and you you can't not catch them. I mean, it's just left and right. I've I've brought home like half a cooler of fillets of whiting like that. Uh, I went down one time with some friends. We were literally like fishing for a couple hours during the day, filleting and smoking whiting, like and drinking beer back at the house we had rented for an Airbnb. And, and we all went home with ass tons of fish on a, just a two-day trip. We got some other things too, but whiting was the big one, you know. So we did a lot of them smoked, and we did a lot of them uh, where we left them raw because they make good cerveche as well. But just, you know, finding out what's around you, get a visual on it, and go just go check it out. Just go check it out. Another thing you can do, I found this to be very effective, post what you're looking for on Nextdoor. Nextdoor is kind of like Facebook for your neighborhood. And most of the Nextdoors, you know, it's kind of surrounding neighborhoods. Like ours has like 3,400 people represented in the collective of all the close by neighborhoods. I posted a thing like that. I got lists of places to go. One told me about a church that had a pond and said, just go talk to the priest. He's always there on Wednesdays. If he knows you're not going to make a mess, he'll tell you you can fish and no one will bother you. Like things you just wouldn't know any other way. I also, I mentioned like housing developments and whatever. Well, there's a housing development that has a pond near it 
but it's not like part of an HOA or anything. It's kind of, you know, back roads of back roads. And then there's this nice subdivision and this nice pond. And there's signs about the rules for using the pond, but anybody can use it. And if I had driven by it, I would have noticed. But if I had, like, if I didn't ask on next door, I would have never found it. I would have never found it. So those are some ways to at least get started trying to find places uh, around your home where you can fish. Uh, next up, again, I've said a lot of things over the years. And one of the things I've said is you're going to see large numbers of colleges closing. Uh, the link I have in the notes for this goes actually to archive.today because it's under a paywall and a remove paywall didn't work. But uh, I was able to be able to read the entire article and have a link. It's not very long uh, without paying uh, without playing, paying Bloomberg to be able to see it. Uh, and the title of it is more U.S. colleges are at risk of closing or merging, Fitch says. And um, this is an, you know, an analyst company, Fitch, uh, very well thought of. And they're talking about some specific colleges that may have to merge and or shut down here. This is going to happen more and more, folks. And what I wanted to more talk about with this is less Jack was right in, in this particular article and just more of how you can know something like this is going to happen. Because I get people that are like, you, you, you do get a lot more right than you get wrong. And how do you know this shit and know it sometimes 10 years before it happens? So when it comes to things like technological disruption, it's actually one of the more easy ones to see. So all you have to do is look at the developing technologies, look at their adoption rates, look at how effective they are. And look at what they enable and then say, what will this technology disrupt? Well, we look at what is supposed to be the purpose of going to college. It's supposed to be to learn, get a degree, and be able to pursue a career. So we have a litany of not just emerging, but matured technologies that have simply been gilded out from disruption up till now. There is no reason a person, especially most of the degrees people get, they're not hard science degrees, they're not STEM degrees, it's not a degree in law or something like that. 90% or more of what a person studies could all be done at home on a computer and never go anywhere, right? And not go $100,000 in debt for a degree in communications or something like that. I'm sorry, it's just it's true. And we have all these, like the technology I'm using right now from StreamYard would let a professor teach a hundred people at the same time from the comfort of everybody's own home. That's a disruptive technology, and we clearly know the sector to be disrupted. What has enabled the college system to hold stranglehold over America's youth for so long is this concept that their degrees are valuable. So they can stave off this disruption for as long as they can maintain that image and not use it themselves. And see, once the colleges start using it, they can't possibly continuously charge as much to a student who's going to sit at home and pursue their degree through distance learning as they do someone that lives in a dorm and goes to classrooms every day. Especially when a great deal of the material that these professors cover is the same material over and over again, over and over again, over and over again. And there's no reason for all of the classes to have to be live. 
And what a much better life for professors as well to not sit there and teach the same class four or five times in a given day. But as that disruption is obvious, then we have to look at the other disruption to this, the devaluation of the degree. A degree in anything is just not worth what it was worth 25 years or 50 years ago now. It isn't. Uh, specifically, if it's outside, again, hard skill degrees in like STEM, you know, uh, science, technology, engineering and math, that, that whole STEM world, a medical degree, uh, an organ, you know, I guess you're back in the STEM, but like organic chem. Like there are certain things that if a person has a bachelor's or a master's in them, that they are a well-educated person for that segment. If they want to pursue a career, they're well prepared for it. I've never said that it doesn't exist at all, but it is 20% of degrees now. 80% of our degrees are in things that you may not even really be able to put a, a, a definer. Well, what does this actually enable you to do? You know, when we make fun of shit like gender studies and stuff like that, of course, it's got, it's got to be harder for them to deal with now because there's like 80 genders now. Used to, gender studies was easy before. There was two. Now it's a much more advanced degree, I guess, to pursue. But it it doesn't provide anything that makes a person able to become gainfully employed. And then we have a lot of these other degree pathways that are like, you know, they have degrees in communications or marketing. And marketing can be valuable. There's a lot of people with marketing degrees could not market ice, you know, to somebody in the middle of the desert. They just have no idea how to do anything. Um, I had one guy work for me. He was a web developer, and he was really good at that. He taught himself to do the web development. And I hired him. I never even really looked at his resume. I brought him in. I found out who he worked for as a designer. I had I said, here, do this for me right now. And I gave him like a couple little assignments to do with some PHP coding and, and some calls. And I said, make me a graphic. And I said, you're hired if you want the job. Here's how much it pays. And it was like a year and a half later that I said, what, well, what is your degree in again? And he told me marketing. He had a degree from SMU, which is an expensive school in marketing. This dude could not market shit. Damn good web developer. No way this guy was ever valuable when it came to, like, coming up with a logo or a catchphrase or a marketing plan or analysis, even though I had a degree in it. So you have this concept that we have oversold the value of the degree. We have made money easy to obtain to go into debt for, and the value of the degree is declined. Those two things colliding eventually have to reach an impasse. The degree I'm purchasing isn't worth what it costs me, and there are other ways that I can do this. Of course, you're going to get a major disruption. And I'm going to tell you, I think within 10 to 15 years, 20 to 30 percent of universities will not exist in their current form. 20 to 30 percent. At least. At least. I'd say in 20 years, more than half of all colleges and universities will be gone, merged away, converted to distance learning, etc. There will still be Stanford and Columbia and Harvard and Yale and all that shit. Right. That'll still exist. But by and large, these phony degrees that don't actually mean you can do anything are going to die because the things you do need to learn, we can learn another way for a lot less money. And we've reached that impasse. Like the whole solution now is what 
Let's pay off everybody's student loan debt. Wait a minute. How do we get the most educated group of people in the history of mankind, according to them, right, with all this value in a degree, and these people can't pay off their own loans? And this is where they start wailing and gnashing teeth and tell you, you don't know what it's like. And so, no, I do know. I'm completely accepting your premise. You went to school for four to five years. You got a degree, a bachelor's in some shit. And, and the job you can get with that degree is not sufficient for you to be able to service the debt on it. I'm accepting that. You can't then backtrack and tell me how wonderful it is. Right? That's when they get pissed because then they want to tell you how smart they are. If you were that smart, you could pay your fucking debt. The school that you paid for did not equip you for the real world. Let's admit that. This is something like 80% of people outside of the hard sciences and whatnot don't use their degree in their job. Let's stop pretending otherwise. You have to get to a point where that kid's brother or his son goes, I ain't doing that shit. And when it all starts, and it will, it's all unraveling now. And we're going to see more and more examples of it happening. And one of the things disrupting it is artificial intelligence and, and technologies like chat GPT. Um, if you know what you're doing, you can literally make chat beat GPT into a teacher for you. But there's something else that you can do with it. And I thought this was pretty interesting. This was sent to me by a listener. And this person has decided to go down the paleo keto recipe track and, and, and live that way. And they're probably a, a customer of someone like ButcherBox or something here. Uh, and it says the following proteins, this is what he gave chat GPT. The following proteins are divided one time or delivered one time per month. Given that, give me a list of recipes, title only, that can be made. Ideally, the recipes should be easy to make and should lean towards paleo keto diet. And, it, and then it lists all the stuff that he gets every week. Two sirloin steaks, each contains 24 ounces, four by six ounce steaks. Ribeyes, each unit contains 20 ounces, two by 10 ounce steaks. And basically just listed the inventory of what he gets every month. And then they said, just titles only, just give me ideas. And then it, it broke that down by each cut, different things that they could make. Bone-in chicken thighs, lemon herb roasted chicken thigh. Chicken thigh with creamy mushroom sauce, farmhouse sausage breakfast, keto sausage and veggie skillet, right? So it gave them all these ideas. And, but this is where he said, this is where I think you should pay attention. Even if you didn't use it for meal planning. This is a method I'm talking about here, not just his result. He said, great. Now organize those recipes into a monthly calendar form, ideally rotating the protein so we don't have the same type too many days in a row. Certainly, and it gives, I'm going to read the week one of four that it gives as what to do. Day one, Monday, garlic herb grilled sirloin steak. Day two, Tuesday, lemon herb roasted chicken thighs. Day three, Wednesday, keto sausage and veggie skillet. Day four, garlic, lemon, butter, shrimp. Day five, butter basted ribeye steaks. Day six, keto beef and broccoli stir fry. Day seven, herb crusted pork chops. Oh, gee, how will it ever be sustainable? How can you eat the same thing? Every, you see what I'm saying when people say that? Okay, but Andrew, I want to stick to the method instead of my own axe to grind on this. Great. Now, replace any spicy meals with alternatives. The kids don't like spicy. So it, it redoes the whole menu and takes out anything that would be spicy hot. Okay, fine. Okay, now let's tweak the list even further. 
let's keep the paleo keto theme and avoid spicy, but reduce the number of recipes by half. Lean toward recipes that can be made in bulk, prepared in advance, and maybe some that uh, are freezer friendly. And it goes and makes a whole new arrangement. Now, perfect. Give four variations on the list for spring, summer, fall, and winter. So emphasizing fresh greens and spring vegetables in the spring for lighter flavors. Summer focus on grilling and fresh summer produce. And then it gives the example menu. Fall warm, hearty dishes emphasizing root vegetables and warm spices, right? And winter comforting dishes with winter produce and warming spices. And uh, I've got a link to this where you can read the whole thing if you want. But this is this is where you start actually getting to the potential of chat GPT, right? This is where you start to actually realize what's possible. You have to not treat AI like a person. You have, and this is something I've noticed my wife struggles with is just talking to Siri. Like, don't try to be nice. Don't worry that you're going to upset it. Like, don't get in a fight with it. But don't be able to say, no, that's not what I, I didn't mean that. Give me this now. Give me, like, give it as much work as you want to give it. It doesn't give a shit. It's just a computer. It's like, you'd be, it would be like worried about doing too many web searches on, on something before you get the answer because the search engine will get tired. And so, being ruthless with what you want. The other thing I will tell you, it is methodology. So when you work with ChatGPT and you get the results you're really looking for, take the commands you gave, copy and paste them into like a notepad or something like that. Because what you'll find is something that's totally different with a couple tweaks on the variables, the same methodology will get you to where you want to get to faster. Because what we have now is like this ultimate tool to, to know all things that are knowable and to just speed up process. There's a lot of things I, and this, this is something here. It's a perfect example. There is nothing that that person asked ChatGPT to do that they couldn't do themselves. What they did was accelerate it and save time. On a daily basis, I use a combination of MidJourney and ChatGPT, sometimes for an hour a day, sometimes for 15 minutes. But average is probably about 15 minutes. In that 15-minute period of time, I accomplish work that I absolutely could do myself that would normally take me 90 minutes to two hours to accomplish. 90 minutes to two hours, that's how long it would take me to do it. Instead, it takes me 15 you do that four days a week, and you're, you, you've added a day of productivity to the week. Let me say that again. You do that four days a week, and you add practically an entire day of productivity to your week. Four times, two hours, eight hours, that's a full day. Takes me 15 minutes each, so I get an hour in return for eight Most people fuck off for at least an hour. I don't, so... I get an extra day of productivity. And if I add in a fifth day of using it, no doubt I have an extra day of productivity. That is four days a month. You're adding almost a week of productivity per month. It is a force multiplier. And this is how it should be seen and this is how it should be used and all the bullshit about sometimes it's wrong. I don't give a fuck. 
I hired a lot of employees in my time, and they were wrong a hell of a lot more than it was. Yeah? It's up to you to be smart enough to know how to use the tool that you're using. And I think this is something that we have gotten very lazy with and very subjective to control with in society. I call it the, uh, the, the state fair factor. All right. So we've all been to state fairs or trade shows or something like that. The RV show is notorious for this. You have this whole area that has nothing to do. Like we have this giant RV show in Fort Worth every year. It's kind of cool to go to. You can walk through all these multi-million dollar coaches and stuff. But there's always this big segment of it that has nothing to do with RVs. They're just random vendors selling all kinds of shit. The home shows like that, whatever. And you come by and you'll find some guy selling something. And he's selling like this, like let's say a tool to cut tile. And he's sitting there and he's making these ornate freaking shapes out of it. And he just crack and the tile works and it works perfectly. And everything he does with it works perfectly. Or the guy's selling some kind of frying pan set and everything he cooks and it cooks perfectly. Or whatever it is. Now, I want you to imagine what the person is selling is paintbrushes. And not for your house. Paintbrushes like Bob Moss. We're going to find a happy little tree back in there like that. Our mighty fan brush and shit. They're selling paintbrushes. And the way they sell a paintbrush is they sit there with a, you know, a, a, a palette with a bunch of paint on it. And they sit there and they paint shit all day long showing you if you had these paintbrushes... Look what you could do. And you're like, well, no, no, you can do that because you know how to fucking paint. Or imagine if they were selling crayons. There's people that can take a Crayola 64 pack and they and what they make out of crayons looks like Rembrandt fucking did it. That doesn't mean you can do it. Well, that's how all these tools are. All these AI tools are like that. There is a learning curve. And there's a certain level of proficiency that you have to develop. And then when you get there, then the productivity comes out. And it is analogous to the upgrade someone gets when they go from a hammer to a nail gun. Now, you would think nail gun, that's easy. Well, until you realize if you don't do certain things, whether you can end up with a nail coming out of the side and going in your finger. I don't know if you've ever used a nail gun. But if you use a nail gun on a regular basis, you'll get really good at clearing jams. There, I don't care if it's a DeWalt or a pass load or whatever. You will have times you go, and you'll just hear it and go, God, son of a, yeah. And you're end up taking shit apart. You're there with a Allen key or something, taking the front end off and getting a nail out of it or something. Like, it happens. Right? So there's all these things that you need to learn about. Is it a, uh, a pneumatic that uses air compressor or, and now you got a hose to deal with. You got to figure out how, how to best do that. Or is it a cordless one, which they're all so wonderful now. That's what I would recommend. My DeWalt framing cordless nailer paid for itself within a week after getting it. It was just like, why didn't I do this sooner? But there's still a learning curve and one dude's going to pick it up and he's going to build a whole house with it. And you're going to be lucky if you can build a freaking shelf out of it or something because there's a learning curve. These AI tools, they work like that. And they're getting easier and easier as they start adding things like plugins and stuff like that to do a lot of things for you. And more and more people are going out and figuring out. And like a lot of people on YouTube, they're giving away or they're selling all their short code and stuff like that. But if you're not using this right now, I've said this before, you're just ignoring a technology that, especially if you run a business, it can really make your life better. Now, 
there's other things you can do with this. My grandson was having trouble with a math problem recently. So I called him over to chat GPT. And, and instead of teaching him how to do the math problem, I had chat GPT teach him how to do the math problem. And I just had it keep doing it different ways until it, until it clicked for him. With understanding, you're not allowed to just use this to get the answer. But when you don't know the answer and you're not sure how to get the answer, ask it to show you how to get the answer and to explain things to you, like, you know, your, your order of, of, of process and what have you like that. And so, yeah, chat GPT is going to, and, and AI in general is going to be a huge part of killing off a lot of these, uh, these universities and what have you. And they will harness them and they will use them too. But that's just going to reduce how many, how many, how many colleges do we need? I'm just going to say this. Whatever that number is, we have a lot more of them than we need. And we're going to come to that reckoning with it. And if you have kids, you need to be teaching them how to use this shit. Even if you're not gonna, they're going to have to. They're going to have to. Do not hide it from them. Supervise it so they don't use it to cheat. Or if they're going to cheat, make sure they're cheating valiantly, if you want to put it that way. Because I have a friend, and one of his favorite sayings is, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to uh, real quick remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day today, I'm bringing it back around again. I brought this to you about a month ago. It's made by Frigidaire. It's a portable ice maker. This is a great tool. I am so glad we brought one of these into our home. Um, you basically pour water directly into it. It has a little recirculating pump inside it. It makes ice, throw the ice in the freezer. Well, that's great because that way you don't have to buy ice. If you regularly buy ice, this thing pays for itself quickly. Ice is three, four bucks a freaking bag now. Uh, it'll make over 20 pounds of ice a day if you stay on it. I don't let it run nonstop. I, uh, I'll empty it and empty it till my freezer uh, compartment that I have for ice is full. I shut it off. If that's not full, but we're going to get ready to go to bed or something, I shut it off because overnight it just fills up the bin and then starts melting. So there's no point in being on. That's just going to make it last longer. Uh, these things are a great preparedness item, though. Your power goes out. That little sucker will easily run on an 800-watt inverter that's attached to your car battery, meaning that while your power is out, you can make ice. If you can make ice, you can keep a cooler. If you can keep a cooler, you can keep your food from growing bad. Between that and being able to, to run your freezer and refrigerator, you're in good shape. Um, I am probably going to actually – they're 88 bucks. the black one. The black stainless steel version is anyway. These things are priced differently by color for some dumb reason because I don't care what color it is. Um, but the black stainless steel one's on sale for 88 bucks today. Even though I have one, I'm probably going to buy a second one because the amount of ice I won't have to buy for one workshop is, is probably worth doing it. With that, I only had one question, though I might have missed them being on my own today. Um, Builder Castle says, question, grow, garden, or tree for fodder? Corn stalks versus grains versus poplar. Okay, it depends on what you're trying to feed. What you're trying to feed. Most of the uh, the fodder trees and stuff like that, or even like corn stalks and shit, chickens aren't very interested in my experience. If you got rabbits, fodder trees are great. If you got pigs, fodder trees are pretty good. If you got cattle, fodder trees are good. If you got sheep, fodder trees are good. If you got chickens, they'll peck out of here and there, but you're not going to get them to make a living on it. So it depends on what you're 
growing your food for, if not for yourself. Chickens, what I have found to be probably the easiest thing to grow for chickens and a great ROI is sunflower, whether it's giant sunflower or black oil sunflower. And all you do is let the head dry out, kind of hangs over and one, all the little uh, center pieces start flaking off of it. Just cut them, throw them in bags and hang them up in your shop and just throw the whole heads in for them and they'll eat them. And there's a bunch of stuff you can grow for chickens. Uh, White Caius oat uh, millet. They really like Japanese millet, uh, white proso millet. There's a lot of different like grain and seed crops you can grow for chickens. Um, for ducks, the best thing I've found has been the aquatic plants. Water hyacinth, duckweed, azola, and water spinach have done better for ducks for me than anything else. They're all high protein relative to being a green. Uh, I can grow them all about nine months out of the year. They're all incredibly productive. Different ones do different well at different times, like water hyacinth really likes the heat of the summer, but Azola doesn't. But Azola is starting to explode right now as the water hyacinth starts to uh, it starts to have cooler nights, and it's just not doing as well. So that, that's been my experience there. I don't know if anybody else has any questions. Uh, I probably need to uh, go ahead. Uh, here we go. we got another question from American Legend. Is BRICS currency worth holding as a hedge? So personally... I don't think I would look at holding anybody's currency right now as a hedge. Bitcoin is a hedge. Silver is a hedge. Uh, properly purchased securities, whether short or long, are hedges. All capital has inflationary risk right now, period, if you're talking currencies. All of them. I don't think that this looks really cut and dry. And I think it's why I get so much pushback because people think that that's what I'm saying when it comes to like one day it's American dominance and a dollar dominance and then it'll be the BRICS currency or whatever. This is a long erosionary bloody transition. So I would not go out and get a hold of a bunch of Brazilian currency or Chinese one or whatever, or, uh, you know, rubles or anything like that i would not i would not put a, a, a significant amount of money there um as anybody's listened to me for any uh, amount of time knows place i'm going to recommend you sweep your surplus capital especially right now while it's still down and we're heading into another halving is bitcoin bitcoin precious metals your own businesses uh your own tools real estate it's tougher now than it's ever been but it, there's still places that like I know I can make money on this property and somebody else is paying my underlying mortgage. That's a hedge. Um, tools that let you do things are a hedge. Gold is a hedge. Silver is a hedge. You know, buying Russian rubles is not much better than I would tell you the dollar as bad as things have become right now is probably still the safest place for your money to be. If you're going to be in a currency, if you're going to be in a currency, um, it's cancerous, erosionary inflation, but it's fairly predictable. You know kind of where it is. And there's there's a place for what I call opportunity cost. So if I'm holding U.S. dollars so that I'm liquid over a year and I have $10,000 and I know 4, 6, 8% of that's going to get eroded this year, depending on how you measure it. 
I'm paying that like a rental fee so that I have the capital should the need arise to need capital or the opportunity arise to require capital. And so there is some level of opportunity cost in holding some of your money in whatever your native currency is or U.S. dollars if you want to make that exchange from wherever you are. With that, guys, I really appreciate everybody. <laughs> oh, I remember that, Eek. I told everybody to stay away from that. Still waiting for the dinar to be revalued. That's the Iraqi currency. There were so many people that after uh, the U.S. intervention in Iraq went and bought like ass tons of Iraqi currency because they thought they were going to become rich on it. Uh, once the U.S. fixed everything. Yeah, we're not good at fixing things. Not in other countries, especially. We're not even good at fixing things in our own backyard. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow we're going to have a unique show. I got a guy on that runs a business selling ball pythons, breeding and selling really expensive ball pythons. But the interesting thing is he had a potential to go into a career in, I think, biomedicine or organic you know, biochemistry or something like that. But it's not what he loved. What he loved was working with and bringing snakes, something that's very close to my heart as well. And he made a decision in his life, instead of taking the guarantee, to go and go for the passion. And it's worked out for him. And so we'll be on to talk about that. So even if you don't want nothing to do with snakes or ball, ball pythons, I think it'll be a great episode anyway, because I think many of us come to that fork in the road. And I've always said, if you can make it work, following your passion and doing your own thing is the way to go. If you can make it work. If you can't make it work, then you can't make it work. But if you can, nothing gives you more freedom and independence and liberty than running your own business and doing things your own way. There are sacrifices that come with it, but nothing is more liberating. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of The Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way